Before we begin this podcast, I acknowledge and pay my respect to the Muinina people, the traditional and original custodians of this land on which I'm recording. Let's not forget that sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty and to keep working for reconciliation. In that spirit, I recognise the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, sea and community. I pay my respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And finally, I recognise that the subject on which I'm speaking, place sensitive resilience and adaptation to change, is a subject on which First Nations people hold deep generational knowledge and expertise. We are all needed, together in relationship, to heal the lands that hold us and protect the flows of life on Earth. Welcome to Going Home Now, a podcast about finding ways to weather what the future holds for us while making it as beautiful as possible. We know it holds dangerous changes to our climate. We know it likely holds some kind of collapse of societal structures. We know in our bones that it will be hard. What we don't know is what we will become in that process. What will humanity become as it meets that moment in history? One possibility is that we might look around and see that we have gone somewhere with this global economic machine and this troubled culture that we don't want to be. We are humans, and this is not a humane place. We want to go home now. Whatever that may be, perhaps you'll soon be turning and making the journey. Hi there, I'm your host, Andy Wildman. I've titled this episode, Are We All Screwed? Because it seems important in this kind of discussion to cut to the question that haunts many of our conversations. Is the metacrisis, this convergence of multiple threats to our global societies, exponential ecosystem breakdown, climate change, societal fracture, economic fragility and energy failures, exponential tech and other system phenomena, are these things enough that our civilization is basically screwed? And if civilization, then all of us within it, are we all screwed? Not that I can answer the question. That would be wildly arrogant to believe that I or we know an answer. But I think if I'm to go so far as to produce a podcast, do graphic design for it and make it pretty, set it all up around the central idea of the future and where the world is headed, well, I think I owe it to you as a listener to cough up a bit of perspective. At the very least, that will mean that if you disagree with this perspective on some fundamental level, you can turn it off and go do something better with your time. Or on the flip side, decide perhaps that there's something here worth following. But of course, this will be somewhat simplistic, an overview by necessity, as I'll be summarising an incredibly complex phenomenon. But it's also an overview by choice, as we don't want to get stuck here debating or justifying the logic the premises and the assumptions, we just want to survey the landscape and get a sense of whether or not we are seeing it in the same way. So let's have at it. Are we all screwed? The question arises from a lot of different directions. Many people are wondering the same thing, despite coming into it from different lenses, and that speaks to the size and complexity of the metacrisis, its many tributaries of causality, and its characteristic interconnectedness. No one or two things or three things are to blame. And of course, I could go into a whole bunch of different frightening and depressing ways in which things have gone horribly wrong and are moving towards some kind of reckoning. 
But I'd like to be more personal about it. For one thing, I promised in episode one, the introduction to this podcast, that I wouldn't bang on about things you already know. You know, roughly speaking, what's happening with the world. So I'll do my best only to go into detail or elucidate something that's important about a way forward. And another thing, the personal is all we've got to work with, isn't it? Our lived experience and our personal rhythms and energy and aspiration, whatever agency we can find in life. Well, actually, it's not all we've got to work with. We've got collective agency and experience and energy and so forth. And that's where the juice really lies. But we'll, we'll get to that later and we'll get to it with gusto. But what I'm talking about right now is the experience that so many of us have had where the layers of the world onion slowly reveal themselves in a way that it makes it very hard for the emotional desire to believe things will be okay to compete with intellectual insight. Actually, it's probably very different for everyone, the ways in which we come to this. We're so wonderfully diverse. So perhaps you, listener, don't quite relate to that. So I'll speak for myself. That was my experience for a very long time, that the build-up of environmental knowledge and systemic knowledge, the way people, politics, commerce, science, technology and so forth interact, like all through my 20s and 30s and 40s made it such that I couldn't see a way out of the situation no matter how clever someone's idea for change might be. And that's still the case because I think when you get honest about these big questions, something settles into place. And by being honest, I mean stuff like letting go of having some tight narrative about what path our civilization is on with erudite theory to back it up, letting go of culture wars where you attack or quietly dismiss certain identity groups for their failings of intellect and values and therefore disregard their ideas about this, the things they see, and letting go of, say, allegiance to a sector of society you feel has redemptive or cut-through power like technology and science or religious consciousness or grassroots citizenry you know, the sector that will save us. Not that these things don't have relevance, just that in my felt experience anyway, none of these things are anywhere near enough to undo the accumulation of cultural infrastructure, the long accretion process of cultural evolution that has brought us to this place. When you get honest about these big things, I'm suggesting there remains these stubborn, wildly gargantuan, wicked problems, the big scary possibility of collapse and even chaos. The late David Fleming described wicked problems like this, and I'm quoting now, highly complex problems which cannot be solved in straightforward ways and may not be soluble at all. We need to be aware of their existence because the problems we are now facing are wicked. If we cannot see a solution, that does not necessarily mean that we have not understood the problem, it may mean that there isn't one. Unquote. He means, by the way, that there may not be a solution, just in case you heard this sentence, as there may not be a problem. And I'd like to pause in and take in the possible reality of that. There really may not be available solutions to this meta-crisis. There are very likely partial ones in many places, but solutions that can actually resolve the crisis of potential collapse just may not be available to the realm of human agency. That's far from certain, of course, but it's certainly possible, which is what Fleming is suggesting. 
I like to quote David Fleming, by the way, from his book, Lean Logic, and I will likely do it a lot, just as a heads up, mainly because I find his writing so warm and elegant and insightful and funny. You could do a lot worse things with your time than work your way around Lean Logic. This huge and thoughtful brick of a book is subtitled A Dictionary for the Future and How to Survive It, and it's organised just that way it's a dictionary with alphabetical entries on various concepts it sounds like difficult reading but it's just the opposite in my opinion it's a highly accessible ecosystem of ideas which you can enter and exit anywhere you like so anyway getting to the heart of our confrontation with what's going on with the world fleming goes on to say and i quote the main features of a wicked problem are vagueness they lack clear definition because they spill over into many different issues and systems hard to grasp. They can be recognised from one or two perspectives, but are too complex to understand in the round. Populated. They affect many people. Solutions are likely to be social rather than technical. No right answer. The best that can be done is to pick the least bad response. Changeable. The problem and attitudes both to it and to solutions are constantly changing. No definition. The problem may be hard to identify in a form that allows it to be shared. No solution. There is no objectively clear definition of the problem, so no definitive solution. And David Fleming has a question mark after no solution, so it's actually a question there, no solution. And no clean ending. The problem solving ends when money and time runs out. End of quote. And that's from page 499 of Lean Logic. So this feels accurate to me. But I do want to say that, as a hint to where I'm going with this, I want to simultaneously hold the largeness of this idea of a wicked problem in mind, and at the same time move away from the arena of intense problem-solving. Let's hold it in mind because the world will continue to treat it as a problem to be solved, and get more intense about that as it awakens more and more to the seriousness of it, but I would like to go in a slightly different direction, and I hope you'll come with me. I should also probably say in regard to the quote from David Fleming that it's easy to make a fetish out of complexity and start applying it to everything, which is a mistake, of course, particularly because it makes it easy to miss valuable simplicities that do exist. And many people will resist that move, particularly if they smell a habit there, a tendency to fall back on complexity as a default position. But it's important to remember that astonishing complexity is actually the baseline note of life on Earth. Any branch of science, any discipline actually, can attest to that. And so it takes work to find simplicities that actually hold true. And the rest of the time, we must respect the baseline note of life on Earth. I think we're somewhat stuffed if we don't. So this, what Fleming described, is no fetishistic way of thinking. It's as simple as it can be, as... Einstein is quoted as saying, although it probably wasn't Einstein, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Unquote. Beyond that line, things break down, distort, become untrue. And this matters. So anyway, does this mean that we are all screwed? Are human efforts anywhere near up to the task of wrangling such a volume of complex, wickedly problematic forces? Maybe, maybe not. Again, this is a question that no one really has an answer to. Or if they do, they're likely hubristic answers because it's too difficult a question for individuals or even institutions. 
My feeling on the question is a sense of let's hold it lightly or gently as something that something to care about but not try to force an answer. First, because it probably can't be answered in advance. And second, because the seriousness of the situation means that there are much more productive, urgent questions on the table. And that's not just me, but many others who are saying a similar thing at the moment. It seems far more important, many of us feel, to give our energies to understanding the situation, the real-time earthly context as best we can, and then to developing responses that are roughly fit for that context. Definitive answers aren't necessary for doing that. In other words, we don't know if the situation will overtake and overwhelm us, but it doesn't really matter. Of course, it matters deeply what happens, but it doesn't matter that much for our choice of response now. If we know what we value and what we will fight for, and more importantly, what we will care for, nurture, love, and protect in any given situation. I'll return to this before the episode is over, but before we do, it's probably worth taking in some of the perspectives that have arisen amongst those who accept the hugeness of the situation about possible paths of, that this wickedly problematic situation might take. And it's probably important to take in the notions of hope and despair and what they mean to us. There's a lot of discussion about hope in particular, and I think an effort to get clear on it can really help us as individuals and as cultural agents in a social system. And yes, I consider everyone to be a cultural agent within their culture. You have an opportunity as a participant in cultural life to help direct its course, to influence its flavour, its values and its purpose. One perspective that I think has real validity in this discussion is the idea of slow denial and late but fast response. This was articulated thoroughly by Paul Gilding in his book The Great Disruption. The basic proposition is that if you look to history for guidance, you'll see a pattern of long-held, sometimes intense denial to the seriousness of a situation, i.e. when we've been threatened by something very serious, that's what we tend to do. We deny it for a very long time, perhaps because it's too hard to accept and often too hard to imagine. But when it becomes clear that it's actually true, everything shifts in a very big hurry. The classic example is the social milieu leading up to World War II. While hindsight makes it look almost comical, tragically comic that is, the common perspective on the streets of London, New York, Paris, Sydney, etc., right up to the wire, was that an imminent invasion was crazy talk, you know, laughable, hysterical hyperbole, and that it was only at the very last minute that those who had been taking the threat seriously were finally able to mobilise the general population and the resources of the Allied nations to respond. And Gilding's point from his book, published in 2011, was that this is very likely what will happen in regard to climate change. The response will be extremely late, which changes the nature of what needs to happen, but governments of various nations will respond, and that response will be intense. I'll let you read the book to find out what Gilding sees that response will mean, but of course it at least means a massive transformation of modern societies as we know them. I think this scenario is quite likely. It rings true in the sense that climate change is something that you can view simplistically and go on a war footing against. Gilding describes what he calls a one degree war to keep global warming to one degree. And precisely because World War II is something that lives in our collective imaginations, our recent historical experience, 
a war footing is something that governments around the world will understand and when frightened enough, resort to. So if a massive shift in social perspective is what you're hoping for, that is very likely to arrive at some point. And we need to brace ourselves as much for the human response as for the effects of climate change. It will all be intense. So if that's not something you've considered before, that's worth letting truly sink in. I think Gilding's work is a genuine contribution in that sense. But climate change is not an enemy and it doesn't work well to think of it that way. It's really just one of the many natural consequences of our cultural practices. We are likely to go into that fight with guns blazing. And of course, when guns blaze, people get hurt. But we will be fighting a symptom rather than the cause of our predicament. Other important contributions, such as Charles Eisenstein's Climate A New Story, quite rightly point out that the focus on changing energy sources as the main solution to our problems is deeply simplistic and unrealistic. It's quite reasonable to consider climate change to be just one of the many ecological imbalances that are in play right now. And it's worth considering that in the well-respected framework of the Stockholm Resilience Centre, whereby we can consider the Earth's whole-of-life system to have nine system-wide boundaries that are not to be crossed, as in any one of them crossed is a life-threatening situation. Climate change represents only one of those boundaries. We have probably, according to the Stockholm Resilience Centre, now crossed seven of the nine planetary boundaries. Will Stefan, an experienced climate scientist here in Australia who contributed to the Planetary Boundaries Framework, has said, and I'm taking this from an interview published last year, that's 2021, that two more boundaries had likely been crossed since the last assessment in 2015. Those boundaries were ocean acidification and freshwater use, and since then the SRC has published data on what they call novel entities, which include chemical pollutants and microplastics, amongst other things, showing that this boundary line threshold too has likely been passed. So to summarise this tangent, we're in a very serious position in regard to climate change. It's an incredibly threatening phenomenon, but there is also a much larger context into which climate change fits, and this context is overwhelmingly serious too. Another of the strains on this context is simply the size of our population, Sometime next year we will reach 8 billion people and there's no getting around the ecological impact of our individual needs as people on a finite planet. This is a physical boundary in itself. We are very likely already in a phase of overshoot and collapse for which there's a slew of evidence that I don't likely need to throw at you. If you'd like to research that notion further though, the classic starting point is William Catton's book written when I was a little kid in 1982 called Overshoot, the Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change. Again, I won't argue the point, but one of the key things to think about if you were to accept Catton's work, as very many people now do, is that many of us alive today were born into that situation of, an, of overshoot and born into the trajectory of collapse. It can be hard to understand sometimes the idea of overshoot, as in if we've crossed the ecological boundaries of the world, why are we still muddling along? having coffee in the sun and polite debates about ecological collapse. Why aren't we collapsing? This confusion is mostly a matter of timescales and what kind of speed is needed to evoke our sense of drama. 
collapse doesn't comply with the laws of Hollywood's script writing and only makes for good movies if you radically speed it up. If you look to the literature of civilizational collapse and read people who have understood how it works in and how it has worked in many instances of history, uh, Joseph Tainter perhaps or Jared Diamond on the subject, you find that it, it happens piecemeal in fits and starts over timelines that allow for many coffees in the sun and allow room for boredom and other non-drama and plenty of space in life and in history for not actually sensing that it's happening. Collapse, as we are likely experiencing it then, if we accept the premise of overshoot, is primarily not a thing located in the future. It's a characteristic built into all modern, postmodern and metamodern history playing out at the end of the Holocene period and into the Anthropocene. Also, the observation that many things in this civilization are on the rise, like technology and wealth and so forth, is not incompatible with the observation of breakdown. This too is a characteristic of collapse. And as an important tangent, many indigenous peoples will rightly point out this impending collapse resulting from our aggressive culture is a potential apocalypse in the making for sure, but many indigenous cultures have already endured a collapse of their societies as a result of our aggressive culture an apocalypse of a sort that many of us in comfortable political positions have no experience of and don't tend to recognise as one. I think it's fair to identify the root cause of our situation the way Joe Brewer does in his book The Design Pathway for Regenerating Earth. Joe names it runaway cultural evolution, and that makes a lot of sense to me in that he's saying that among many animals there is culture, which is adaptive and confers advantages in their environments. And it evolves over time in a fairly benign way for most species who exhibit this trait. But for one species, cultural evolution has become a runaway phenomenon because Homo sapiens appear to be the only creature whose cultural adaptations accumulate in a ratcheting effect generation upon generation. We've accumulated enormous power by way of this adaptive effect and it has led to this point in history where we appear to be threatening our own existence, heavily augmented by the access that we gained in this process to fossilised hydrocarbons. This is what has allowed humans to propel ourselves into a temporary position of overshoot and the long process, in experiential terms anyway, of collapse. And Joe Brewer goes on to explain that this story has been unfolding for a long time, for thousands of years, and collapse has been a baked-in potentiality the entire time. It has, in fact, occurred at multiple points on a smaller scale, and it seems that no culture that can be described as a civilization has ever avoided collapse. But he also points out that human cultures are not fated to follow this path. It's simply one way that cultures can evolve. It's likely that a destructive or self-terminating cultural path can be arrived at in multiple ways, but self-terminating cultural evolution is not inevitable. And this is where the story, if you're willing to follow this far, diverges from the narrative of humanity desperately trying to solve a wicked problem. As I said earlier, I'd like to, I'd like to go in a slightly different direction than that problem-solving paradigm, so... This is where we follow the signposts, perhaps. 
One of the places these signs might lead us is to the realm of human evolution, as in evolution of the species, which is another thought step beyond the evolution of cultures. But I think it's also important at this junction to feel into a valid critique of human evolution in the context of potential collapse. Many cultures, particularly indigenous cultures, can quite rightly object to us describing this trajectory of, um, you know, power accumulation, then depletion, then collapse as a story of humanity. They can legitimately say, or many of them can legitimately say that it's our story, not theirs, this dominant, aggressive, colonizer culture story. So please don't speak for all of humanity in your lament. This can all be argued with, of course, and there are counter-narratives that will show a consistent history of indigenous cultures, for example, wiping out megafauna wherever they're encountered. But I think it's still a very important thing to be aware of. Many cultures on Earth may well have continued in reasonable alignment with ecological health were they not colonised by the less ecologically sophisticated aggressors. But the fact that aggressive cultures did come to dominate the world is a fact that suggests that something like evolution is still what's needed. By the way, for an account of how the currently dominant cultures came to be in that position, Jared Diamond's book Guns, Germs and Steel is superb and deeply eye-opening. So you might want to get a copy of that one if you haven't read it already. Human evolution is perhaps what is needed in the sense that ecologically sensitive cultures are likely to always be more vulnerable cultures than extractive, aggressive ones. So it's this potential for mobile violence and its prevalence whereby a less sophisticated, more aggressive culture who is accumulating power by way of cultural accretion can come and sweep into the territories of the other and undo all the important work there. It's this that seems persistent across our species' time on Earth so far. And I believe this is where, this is where the talk of human evolution remains valid. I could be wrong and I'd love to get more sophisticated in my understanding of that idea. So please feel free to get in touch and correct me if you have a deeper perspective. And this is why I often wonder where humanity might go in the experience of this likely collapse, which may well be global, that is unfolding. Collapse, as far as we know, has never before been global. If some of us or many of us survive such a thing, could this be the moment where... As a species this time, we learn how to go beyond intercultural violence and domination and so allow ecologically sensitive cultures to benefit from long cultural evolution, i.e. to get better at what they do, more gentle, more insightful, more attuned to the biosphere over thousands of years. It's, enorm it's an enormous question and hard to know much about, but compelling all the same, I think. Am I suggesting that we hold out hope for such a thing in the here and now? No, not really. Not in the way that most of us think of having hope. It can be hard to connect such an idea to our lives in this culture as it stands right now, and I'm sure that there are plenty of listeners who will hear that as a ludicrously unrealistic idea. I can see it that way too, quite easily. A global collapse is in many ways more likely to have the opposite effect. But it is an idea that I think might be worth holding in the backs of our minds, nurturing a little and seeing where the 
connections to our current lives might be. And I'll return to this idea in later episodes as well as other possibilities for the future. I should also say that I've skipped rapidly over some very rich terrain to get to this point. And so if it works better for you to go back into parts of it and explore, there are some very good resources available. Joe Brewer's book is particularly good. And each chapter has suggested readings, which I recommend following. It's a small treasure trove of research to dip into. Links and details are in the show notes as per usual. But what about the question we started with? Are we all screwed? My apologies if you were looking for a more concrete answer. But I suppose I was only prepared to ask the question in order to move away from it or use it to find another direction. We can't know. But I think it's fair to say that we know there is serious danger in this time of history. And over what time frame, that's much harder to say. But again, the seriousness of the danger and the possibility of quite short time frames make it enough that we give this danger our most dedicated attention. As I said earlier, it doesn't matter that much to our choice of response now if we know what we value and what we will care for nurture, love and protect in any given situation. The more important question is what our dedicated attention should be made up of. What exactly should we do? And that's not easy to answer either in the sense that this is personal, context-dependent, iterative and ultimately creative. So how would anyone say? How can you answer that for another person? But there is an exploration to be done by each of us that can answer it for ourselves. For me, that exploration is built upon a platform that goes something like this. When you've understood that climate change is real and has very serious ramifications, when you see that it's also not the heart of the predicament, when you understand the Earth systems as a whole are in a serious position and the possible consequences of that, when you see the deep structural complexity of human cultural and physical systems and the momentum, the sheer weight of that self-organising juggernaut, when you understand the primacy of energy, which is something I haven't mentioned much yet, that energy runs everything from financial systems to agriculture to the biosphere and that access to it is both fragile and intensely problematic when gained, when you see that the dominant human cultures on Earth are fundamentally running on borrowed time and borrowed energy extracted from their life source and are in the process of running ragged, running out, running into hard limits, when you understand all that, the exploration is the asking of questions like, what does good work look like in that context? What would be a good use of our energy, our one wild and precious life on this planet? And to come back to the shift that I was suggesting earlier, where we see the size and the wickedness of the problem alongside David Fleming and prepare for the intensity of likely responses, late but fast and transformative, as Paul Gilding has predicted, and see that it may all represent an inadequate effort in the light of the larger context, worldwide ecosystem breakdown, as Joe Brewer examines with such dignity and care. What then? Well, this podcast will continue to ask that question as deeply as such a project allows and as deeply as I'm able with your help and with help from a community of similarly concerned people. 
What I'm suggesting for now, though, if you accept this understanding, is that we perhaps slide our main focus of energy away from problem-solving and predictions and slide it gently but firmly toward enablement of potential, toward emergent possibility. Because that's a different process and a different energy and emphasis that's needed and asks for particular skills and awarenesses. It's probably more demanding, but ultimately also more rewarding. For many of us, it's the process that is much more likely to take human cultures somewhere positive. And of course, governments and institutions and all the other structural expressions of our social order will continue to operate in a problem-solution space, perhaps to the bitter end. So I think it's important that a more creative response arises amongst those of us with lighter ties to the establishment. And there lies this terrain that I'm talking about, this open and interesting country to explore. And yes, the timelines of collapse do allow for exploration with coffees in the sun, and it may be crucial that we do this, take what time we have and walk that country together. I had meant to, as I suggested at the beginning of this episode, touch more on the personal, the need for, for hope, for spiritual sustenance in regard to all this. But the context of that need has taken this whole episode, despite skipping rapidly over complex topics. So perhaps that's where we'll go next in episode three and take some time and care with the personal realm of spirit and hope and ways perhaps to carry ourselves along in this extraordinary time in history. And I'd like to finish up by saying I feel it's important to hold all these ideas with humility in the sense that they could all be wrong or partly wrong and therefore certain implications we arrive at may be suspect. This has been an outline of what I've learnt and hold to be true about our situation but it's also just a best educated guess and a truly iterative understanding. At the end of David Fleming's entry on Wicked Problems, he says, and I quote, but do not believe that a problem is wicked because someone tells you so. Look again. End of quote. It's important, I think, especially with subjects of this importance, to employ a judicious mix of interdependence and sovereignty. In other words, it's important to rely on each other to think better and learn together as a community but also important to be able to step away from the norms and the shared understandings and conditioning that so easily hold us in thrall and question things for ourselves. We help each other by moving backwards and forwards in that way, searching for reliable insight. Anyhow, in that spirit, I hope you will keep exploring and imagining and considering deeply. There's a lot to think about and it's crucial that we do it together in relationship and for each other's benefit. Until next time, take care and look after each other.